So it was really interesting because I'd love to just share this because we got to throw some sense of humor into this. What did you say about my last name, which I could not stop laughing about? <laughs> like when I looked at it, it looks like it looks like three last names that got into a car accident together. Like they all collided at an intersection or something. Or maybe it was just like a really nasty compromise at Ellis Island. You know what I mean? Like a hundred years ago, they're just three really bitter people. They came up and they're like, I'm just, we're starting a new life. We're going to compromise. This is how we're going to start our American journey. Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. This is a very special episode, and we are speaking with author Christoph Morrow. Christoph is a Navy veteran, author, and award-winning journalist from Texas. Surviving a hellish upbringing of addiction and abuse, he joined the military as a corpsman immediately after high school. After serving for a year, he manifested Tourette's, and the severity of his condition incurs great injury to himself even now. Christoph made several attempts to attend a university and even won the highest awards at two different schools for their annual creative writing contest, but ultimately decided to continue self-teaching. Then in 2016 to 2017, he became sober from alcohol after struggling for several years, became a journalist by audition, and won awards in photography as well as feature writing from two Texas press associations. Christoph moved to Canada in 2017 to live in British Columbia and began writing his book, The Second Son, in October 2021 and finished in February of this year. He volunteers tutoring other writers one-on-one and has an elderly cat named Sparkles, who I love seeing on videos, and just published a kid's Christmas book called Liam Earns a Friend. Christoph has such a huge, powerful backstory. And the reason we wanted to call this episode, there's so much more to my story because there's so much more to him. He shares the journey of Tourette's and what that is like and how this has actually helped him to really zone in and be the writer that he was meant to be. He owns this part of his story and he shares it. The one thing that he said that spoke so deeply to me is is that your diagnosis, whatever that is, is not your fault, yet is your responsibility how you manage or respond to it. And there's so much more to your story than a diagnosis, a label, whatever you want to call that. I was so impressed with Christoph that I actually had him come in to speak to our authors, which I have only had one guest coach in that space. And I am so grateful that our paths have crossed. You're going to absolutely love this episode. 
And I'm going to ask you that if he, if it, this episode speaks to you, please reach out and connect and let him know, as well as look at his book on Amazon, The Second Son. I am thrilled to have you here today. Can you tell everyone a little bit about who you are today and what it is that you do? Uh, my name is uh, Christoph Morrow, and I'm a published author, uh, and I commit my entire obsessive mind to my work so i am uh yeah i'm very serious i I, i'm the kind of person that will like wake up in the middle of the night to to delete a comma i know that it's crazy but that's just the way that's just the way it works so you know i love my work you love your work you love your work have you always and i know this is part of your story have you always been a writer uh you know what my genesis uh began i think with a solemn task of write uh we were charged when i was in the seventh grade our teacher said, uh, we're going to, during first period, we're going to write a letter to soldiers in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've always found like military service to be a very, like a very honorable thing if it's performed honorably. Right. Uh, and so I knew that I wanted to eventually join the military, but I wrote this letter and I remember having this sort of awakening. It felt the, like the most natural thing in the entire world. And I remember each, like describe like just i remember just this writing and it felt like music um and i left i gave the letter and i left at lunchtime i was swarmed by a bunch of kids uh and who had even kids that i didn't that didn't like me i was certain had a great deal of contempt for me they were like your letter was really good and i was like okay hold on <laughs> there's something to this so <laughs> i went back to the classroom to go see the to my teacher and um i still haven't been able to find her so i don't know her name is miss spree i don't remember her I don't know her first name, but she has a twin sister. I don't know. Anyway, um, so uh, she told me, she's like, oh, my gosh, I loved your story. I loved your uh, letter. Uh, can we publish it in the newspaper? And all of a sudden, like, yeah, that was sort of the seed that brought into me my purpose. <laughs> and so that was kind of the start of writing. And that was, was that really the seed that also planted that said, I think I want to go military. I think I want to go that direction. Tell me a little bit more about that time. Did that intrigue you a little bit more about learning more about your next direction or your next step? When I was 13? Yeah. I know. I think I, no, that's funny. No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, the thing is that I'd always been fascinated with geopolitics because there seemed to be like underneath the skin of the superficial stuff, but politics and whatnot, there really truly was a sort of chaotic order happening. Um, and it's, and that it was predicated often on fear and, uh, coercion. Um, and, um, you know, I just, a lot of, a lot of stuff that like individual humans don't have the power to do by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being fascinated with that, that order that I, that I had to discern, you know, you have to extrapolate it through incomplete data. That's what you have. That's all you have. You, you'll, you can never be certain. Um, Unless the the target of your thought they're dead, like I don't know, I you know what I mean, you know what I mean. So if that, so it's really extraordinary, um, how that like I I read Orson Scott Card's uh, Ender's Game, and then that was a sort of uh, that sort of helped me to put some of the things together because it was the 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 things that he claimed in the book. Some of the things were consistent with reality, and I was fascinated. I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about how people could influence with just words, they could change the world. It was extraordinary. That's true. <clears throat> Pardon me. And the words like can change for the better or worse, right? Like the words mm-hmm. are really powerful. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you ended up going into the Navy. That's right. No. Yeah. And what? How old were you when you went into the Navy? I was I was eighteen. Oh, young. I that's what I had mm-hmm. the feeling. So eighteen old. Wow. And mm-hmm. how long were you there? I was there for a little over a year, and then I uh, I I developed my first manifestation of Tourette's syndrome. And uh, you're not deployable <laughs> if you if you if that can happen to you. And as my I was a corpsman, which is a medic. Um, but I was going to eventually have to join, uh, the fleet Marine force and, uh, I was on the East coast. So, I mean, I could have been, um, deployed to like Kuwait or some of the, you know, places in the least it's, Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I, so I had to leave and, uh, then I had to figure out what I was going to do after that. I stayed in medicine a little bit, but. So you mentioned, and I want to, I, I really do want to ask this question manifested Tourette's can Mm -hmm. you can you explain a little bit about more about Tourette's and your reference to manifested okay Uh, yeah of course okay so the the thing about uh Tourette's syndrome uh, it's described as a syndrome because uh syndrome means that there is um for the people that don't know it's a, a collection of symptoms that are pretty reliable um and but the underlying cause of the symptoms is unknown. So yeah. So they're not quite sure what causes Tourette's. It is, it is truly, there's a number of, of it's like a new machine that it's like your brain breaks and then it reforms itself in a, in a dysfunctional way. I think uh, what I had, uh, I, I grew up with a great deal. Uh, it can, it can be induced by violence through abuse and uh, neglect and things like that, which I had all of those, um, you know, like very, very, intense physical abuse like i would even describe it as torture truly um and yeah that uh, truly every day it was uh i and uh it just really um yeah i'm sorry i got no, lost in the you don't have uh, to apologize no and i you, i want you to share whatever you feel comfortable and this is just really people like i haven't interviewed anybody who's had Tourette's, and i just want to be able to explain like what this is and yeah. I also, this piece on manifesting it. So it didn't show up. What age were you when the symptoms first started to show? It's actually outside of what the DSM-5 says. The criteria says that it has to manifest before 18, but it did not. I did not have Tourette's until I was 19. Okay. Um, and then I had what I th- what felt like a uh, a seizure and would, would appear like a seizure, except I was conscious for it. I did not know what was going on. Uh, my body just was not under my, I had no agency. And so, uh, I happened to do that eight feet away from a doctor. So that was fine. <laughs> you know, so I got taken to the ER cause I was working in, um, med surge at the time, um, you know, just uh, providing patient care. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, like we did IVs and all, all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I went to the ER and they tried to do a number of, uh, uh, tests to find out if perhaps I had, a brain infection because they did a seat, they did a um, spinal tap, which I ended up needing a blood patch for, for about seven days. I was walking around like hunched over because I couldn't, because I couldn't stand up because I don't, I don't know what the, what the physics are, but there is physics involved in this problem. So I, something about um, the a blood patch is meant is literally is what it sounds like. They use the coagulation property of blood and they, they, they draw some from your arm and they inject it where they did the spinal tap. Because what's happening is like you're leaking. 
cerebral spinal fluid. And I think, I think what your, your brain is supposed to float in that stuff. Mm-hmm. So if it's not floating, <laughs> yeah, so it's problematic, I think. So, um, yeah, I, I, it was awful. I was, I was like that for like a week before somebody was like, Oh, maybe you need a blood patch. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> like seriously, like it was awful. It was the most awful thing. Um, yeah. And then after that, um, they're really just, they were confounded and bewildered. So was I, and no one knew what to describe it as. Uh, they asked me if I wanted to leave and I was like, I think I should go. <laughs> yeah. So since I wasn't deployable anymore, I was going to end up like literally just cleaning, brushing, mopping, doing all that stuff, like, which is noble work if it needs, when it needs to be done. Right. But I, it's not, it's not what I was trying to do at the time. So. So then you left and did you, were you able then to get medical support quickly after so that you knew what you were dealing with or how long did that take? I have a feeling this is not going to like this answer, but how long did it, <laughs> sorry, I could just no, see no. depression. How long did it take for you to find out what you were dealing with? Honestly, I had, it was episodic, uh, several for about six years after that. I had only about four incidences, I think, incidents uh, where I actually um, had something uh, kin to what I feel now. Um, it was it was a much more extreme version, I feel like, uh, and more uh, localized um, in what it was doing. Because I so I only had like one specific thing I was doing. I so I didn't didn't know until I was twenty five or twenty six, and it was quite uh, like truly like the. It was very, uh, he was very, the doctor, cavalier, nonchalant. I'm not really sure what the word is to describe how he told me, but he said, I described my symptoms to him, which was that my abdomen muscles were tightening and that I would grunt. He said, well, let's get something to treat that Tourette's. And I was like, wait, what? And I was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> wait, I have Tourette's? <laughs> what the I didn't know. I didn't even know his name. Um, yeah, it was pretty. It was yeah. It's not fun. It's it, so it, nonchalant, right? Like they'll just say mm-hmm. something in passing, and mm-hmm. it's like, wait, but nobody's actually even told me that yet. Can you just back up for a little bit and tell mm-hmm. me a little bit more about it? How did you feel when you first heard that? I know you just described it, but how did you feel? No, right. I I I honestly, um, I had no reference for what I was going to experience. Other than uh, a South Park episode, which I think a lot of people share in that with me, they've seen that one South Park episode about uh, Tourette's, um, which, you know what, frankly, people, when I, the more I thought about it, the, the more I realized that Matt Stone and Trey Parker actually did a really great service. Because when you consider how Tourette's manifests and the way that it can be perceived as violent or fearful, it's in that way. It's in the cursing corporate. And so they so they may have not done a great job of representing all of the other symptoms of Tourette's, but the ones that startle people, the ones that confuse people, the ones that think that someone's being vulgar and uh and and distasteful, they they know that they're not because of because of that popularity of that episode. So they could be like, I think that guy has that thing mm-hmm. from the South Park. You know? I do know actually, and I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's um so it's almost perceived that, okay, Tourette's, then it's violent or there's outbursts and it's out of control. But you're also sharing that's not necessarily what your symptoms were at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they, yeah. A lot of people, in fact, only 10% of people uh, with Tourette's actually have cor- 
corporeal i can't remember the word for it corporeal or something whatever uh the one where you curse um you say curse words i am one of those i am of the 10 percent that do mm-hmm. um in fact the manifestation of like the severity of my Tourette's is quite rare um like 10 percent of the 10 percent of the people that have Tourette's have it as as severely as i do um so it's it, because most people actually recover uh the ten percent that uh, don't recover from Tourette's from childhood, uh, who don't grow past it, um, that's how it. Yeah. So. Okay, and so thank you for sharing that because this, like I said, this I appreciate you sharing this. Um, how many years ago was that since you were diagnosed? If you don't mind my, my asking. Yeah, that was um, seven, eight years ago now. I'm 34, so. Okay. Um, so how, I mean, cause I mean, you, you have done, I want to go into all of the things that you're doing now, which I love. Um, how has life been since diagnosis? Like how, what, what have you come through, learned about yourself or also, like you said, maybe seeing connection to, you know, some of the challenges that you have had to come through. It's, it's interesting mm-hmm. if that's how the body it's in the body is like this massive mm-hmm. data machine. It is taking mm-hmm. in information at all time. And mm-hmm. the last couple of years learning how to be um, an NLP trainer. And so I've learned like a lot of tools. So learning on releasing trauma in our body. It is amazing mm-hmm. how our body is storing experiences so much mm-hmm. so that you know what you Sometimes people are surprised. They're like, oh, I didn't even realize that was what I was holding on to. If I could just say, I think actually Tourette's is like truly part of it is an actual physical manifestation of what people are thinking, mm-hmm. like the, the the way that they want to punish themselves. Um, it's it's part because rumination is a large part of uh, is a part of, large part of my Tourette's. And so um, I were I'm really just executing the kind of. So in that sense, like the the way that I'm injuring myself is often the way that I was hurt as a kid, and so uh, you know it's it's so it, I punish myself in a similar way, and the body, like you said, the body remembers, and that's how it remembers. What's really and I'll and I can actually I can substantiate that further. These glasses, you know why I wear these glasses? I have 2020 vision. I don't need to wear glasses. I wear glasses because for some strange reason, I don't slap myself in the eye or any part of my eye area when i'm wearing the glasses i don't it and i think it has something to do with the fact that i grew up very poor and breaking my glasses or compromising them in any way was not a good thing for me and so i took very i was very careful with them so i feel like my body knows not to hit this area it's, it's just so strange but and, and it's you know it, I wouldn't call it strange. I think it's actually, I do feel like there is definitely something to that. And mm-hmm. um, I appreciate you sharing that. I really do. Mm-hmm. So as you have, you look at the last seven years, I mean, you you grew up with tremendous amount of violence and, yep. you know, addiction, abuse. Um, mm-hmm. How have you been able to support yourself to you know, support the direction that you're moving in towards and not hold on to that part of your story to let it define you and stop you from living the life that you're meant to live. It's really interesting because there's a, there's a period of re- like recovery of like a, a whiplash when you get the condition and then you, you have to experience um, that condition 
in the real world, having that condition amongst other people. And you're going to have a trove of experiences that are negative and positive. Uh, once you experience all of these things, it's really, you don't, you don't have the time or the, or the understanding to repudiate all of the accusations of what is a deficiency uh, of in the society. Now you're a cripple like me, I'm a cripple, you know, and I, I have to contend with all of the, the impression, the impression that that has on people around me. And it takes a very long time to realize that that's, that's not how you're accountable to society. You eventually get so tired. I feel like for, for me, I got so tired of self-loathing uh, and that I, 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 and then I started to investigate uh, the, the quality of my illnesses, which was ADHD, OCD, anxiety, depression, you know, and, and Tourette's, of course. Um, and I realized that uh, I, while mental, the, the, one of my favorite things, uh, philosophies in life is that uh, your m- mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And so I, if I wrong someone uh, because, you know, like I, I act hastily or, or, or I'm, or I'm, I'm critical or in some way uh, I've wronged him in some way. I, I apologize. And I, and I talk about uh, to myself anyway, that this isn't a, this isn't define your character. This isn't a reflection of who you are. You have a brain that experiences emotions so much more intensely than everyone else. Marsha, there was a, there were three days after I was approved for disability in uh, British Columbia. This was a, like a, in my life, this was huge because uh, now I knew, I, now I knew that forever for the rest of my life, I would not have to worry about that kind of income. And because of my, you know, having uh, Tourette's and being at the mercy of like, sometimes giving myself black eyes, I got a blood, I have a bloody lip right now because I, I punched myself in the mouth two nights ago and I, I busted my lip. Um, and so it's about learning to forgive yourself for those wrongs and, and really um, like placing the blame where it belongs, which is that uh, not in your spirit, not in your heart. It's, it's just in your brain. Your brain is dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. I experienced for those three. Oh, excuse me. After the, excuse, that's what I was trying to say. After the three, uh, after the, I was approved for disability. I had three days where I didn't experience anxiety. It was the strangest, most profound experience of my life. I've never in my life felt that kind of peace ever before. On the fourth day, it would diminish by about half. And on the fifth day, I woke up and it was gone. I did not have the freedom from anxiety anymore. Um, but it, it gave me the most uh, profound revelation, which is that uh, I think that a lot of people that don't deal with anxiety are being rather cruel and unfair to people that do. The world literally felt so different to me. It, it, I could perceive it differently. Like it was every, every interaction was different. Uh, even my ability to cope with past stuff uh, was different. Um, there was so much bitterness that had been shed for those three days and, and, uh, and anxiety. And even when things went wrong, it was, I was so carefree. It was my, even my brother, my brother was, he was bewildered. He didn't know what was going on with me, <laughs> but he was happy about it. Um, but after that, I, I just, I realized that, oh my God, you are, if you are experiencing anxiety so severely, you are, you're not seeing the world the same way everyone else is. You're just not the people that are healthy. Don't, they're not, it's the world is not a violent, scary place to them. It is so benign to them. 
you but but for you it's it's fire all the time i don't know if i've ever had that explanation and i cannot tell you how powerful i think that that is i honestly can't like thank you so much for sharing that because mm. because this we have this i'm going to say we have this division in a sense where in society where we have people who say they are not struggling with anything mental health and i actually really feel like in on some level (laughs) i think it's ridiculous i think it's everybody i I do isn't a part of human experience you have trauma has to exist because it helps your brain will form it on its own if it doesn't right like i don't know sorry no no don't apologize i think it's brilliant i think that like the second how our subconscious mind works the second we have something that goes Mm. wrong and is perceived as a threat or trauma what it does immediately is it takes it and it buries it and it's like mm-hmm. okay well that's not safe territory we're not yeah. go there and it blocks mm-hmm. you off and before you know it you have sections of yourself that are literally blocked off and mm-hmm. you're not in this space of allowing yourself to feel um and experience life fully and so when i listen to you say this i i just i think that was one of the best explanations I've think I've ever heard. And I think that we have this division in society where we have, again, people who saying that, well, like, why can't they just do something and get help? Whatever, whatever saying that, or that doesn't affect everyone. And over here, I really believe that, you know, mental health, any of the, you know, anxiety, depression that we are, I know that's a big lump sum, I don't know anybody that it doesn't affect or impact. And last week I interviewed somebody who we talked a lot about addiction and talking about the numbers of addiction. And it literally blew my mind when we were talking about it. But one of the things she was saying is like in the U S right now, 46% of the population is dealing with the severe adverse effects of addiction. And she goes, I'm not talking about the people who are getting up, going to work. I'm talking about like severe adverse effects of addiction. And for every person who is experiencing that, there are five people that they they are impacting. So not as a blame thing. She says, we have uh-huh. to recognize that addiction is affecting like everyone. I kind of see mental health being the same way. I don't know anybody that has not met somebody who is dealing with maybe a diagnosed mental health condition. And then there's a lot of people who have never, ever had diagnosis, who've never even taken time to even look or get in touch with their own feelings or their own experiences. So I feel this real division, which I think is unfortunate because that certainly doesn't support a lot of people who are struggling in our society. I think you would have to argue like you would have to be able, if you cannot assert that you've never tripped in your life, you know, you can't say that no one's ever given you a dirty look that you were afraid of not liking you. These are like, these are things that your brain, if you did, if that, if, if you're the level of trauma is, is only so much like stimulation, like whenever you're a kid, too much stimulation is like a real thing. Yeah, You know, but like when you get an adult, you're like, you're just trying to like blast your whole life and get everything, like TV, every, doing all these things at once, watching your phone and everything, you know, um, but kids, they're, they're a lot more sensitive. I think the brain uh, is, it will create trauma out of not like out of those events. Like, and I, I just, yeah, it's an absurd. It, and you will then have some kind of anxiety about it. I mean, it's just, it might be situational, contextual, that's fine, but. Uh, but to pre- pretend that you are like wholly 
immune to the notion is just absurd to me. Is absurd. Yeah. I think I think absurd is like really well said. I think it's really well said. And I know that makes things harder because we also have people who don't like they don't see things this way. They see it in a way that it's like very separate. Mm -hmm. So to be able to feel the way you just explain that, the decrease in anxiety. Yeah. Like that is that something that you are still feeling now? Like, are, like, so no, no. Okay. So when there are times I was going to ask you, how long did that feeling last for you? You were starting to explain that. Mm-hmm. And then now when you do experience the feelings of anxiety, how do you best support yourself? Well, well, the trouble is, uh, um, it's, it's actually really difficult. So I was, I had those feelings of, of like peace, true peace it was it was it was bliss honestly that's the word i would use it was bliss it truly was i could it it was like watching that movie um uh what's that called uh pleasantville you know like it it felt like that i was walking outside and i felt like freaking mr rogers like i was like look at everybody smiling and i was like i just could not stop i was so happy about life it just felt it, it felt extraordinary it was the most beautiful experience of my life for those three days i'll never forget those three days i really won't i i've been talking about them for months now <laughs> can i um, ask you why do you feel that you felt them at that time do you feel it was because you were now receiving some support and maybe you yeah i heard i think that valued okay i think that the root i think that the product that what i'm experiencing is a product of a of a very uh, of the base terror, the, the the most foundational terror of my life, and I think of a lot of people's lives, of losing their livelihood and being, for some reason, and being tossed into the streets to starve and die with alone. I think that's everybody's fear, and I think uh, that at the lowest possible, the most primordial part of us, you know. Um, uh, it's it's just uh, it's just our species like we're very you know we're i guess anyway um so uh it's just i think i think that that fear was abated uh and for th- and for three days my my brain was like i'm gonna go on vacation i'm going i'm going i'm going <laughs> and it just left um but on the fourth day i could tell the, a marked difference it was it was actually really disappointing and i remember just spending half the day thinking oh my god i think i'm going back and then when i woke up on the fifth day i was anxious again and and ruminating and you know i also didn't have ticks that i didn't have very many ticks at all those three days during those three days yeah so this is where thank you for sharing this like i just, I'm so grateful for um, this real conversation and I want to support you and to just have the listeners be able to understand and see things from a different perspective. Our, our body's internal reaction, like I'm not a scientist, I'm just going to play it, but, but our, I can say from a subconscious mind perspective, our body's internal clocks and how we respond to something, we will always revert back to how we knew how to handle something, even if it mm-hmm. wasn't supporting us. 
we will go back to the discomfort that we say we don't. And I'm not saying it, but it's just the, the body. devil, you know, devil, you know, the body will go back and respond in a way to a discomfort that it knows, even if you're like, but we, I don't want that. I don't want that at all. And yeah. so that is without any physical, like, if, uh, conditions. So mm-hmm. the body will do it. it. It'll automatically go back until, you know, we can start to recognize and see that. So it's, there are times like for people who struggle with anxiety, I have, I 100% have, is there are times when anxiety will come up and it's like, but there's nothing happening. Like what is like, I don't even know why mm-hmm. I feel this way because everything is fine. Everything is good. It makes no sense, but our body is having a reaction sometimes to something and it's, it's fascinating. So I can just, I just want to share, like, as you're, as you're sharing so much, it's just, yeah, it's hitting home. I was thinking uh, that like returning to those, you were talking about um, like the pattern of behaviors that you end up resigning yourself to again. It's, it's kind of, it's tasteless cake. You know what I'm saying? I do. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It's like, I'm, I don't, I don't actually want it, but it's what it goes back to. It's funny because the body will go to, like I said, the uh, funny, ironic, the discomfort that it knows as opposed to the unknown. The unknown could have like all the possibilities in the world, but our subconscious mind is like, that's scary. I know what mm-hmm. this pain over here, here feels like. So I think it's just easier to accept what I have over here than it is to go there. So it's, it's definitely a very, um, the body is very, very fascinating. So how do you support yourself now in moments where you do feel that anxiety come up or you do feel those symptoms being like pushed? Well, there's a couple of things that I've learned very recently that are really effective. Uh, all Everyone knows about grounding techniques saying, look at three things or five things you can touch, yeah, smell, see, things, right? Um, but uh, for me, it, it was about learning to meditate, which to me is about meditation is excellent to relieve anxiety, but it's like emptying a pool with a garden hose. You know what I'm saying? It's going to take a long time. But it's reliable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only laughing and I'm not laughing at you. Trust me, I'm laughing at myself right now. Cause I have been like religiously working on hypnosis and um meditation. And I have a meditation that I'm doing right now. And I'll swear sometimes I'm like so proud I'm doing it, and all of a sudden I'm like, Marsha, your thoughts are just there's like ten thousand things happening at once. And I'm just trying to not resist it, but just have a sense of humor and see it and recognize it. But meditation, I think I'm going to stick with that visual of like emptying a pool with a garden hose. It takes time. Yeah, it takes time, but it's, but it, it'll, it happens. And, and, uh, I think it helps the brain kind of adjust to the notion that something might take a long time. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But the visual is, is, is helpful. I think, um, the other thing that I do, uh, is something called tapping, which some of you might be familiar with, but, uh, bundles of nerves. Yeah. Tapping on bundles of nerves. Yeah. And, uh, that's pretty, uh, that's, that's very effective. Um, but uh, unfortunately a lot of people think you look weird in public when you do that. <laughs> they do. Uh, right. Um, and the last thing I, this is actually really recent. I actually learned this, um, I think yesterday or earlier today, uh, that, Anxiety and excitement 
are so very closely linked. So if you look, it's it's so funny. Uh, you know, you fake it till you make it. So you're lying to everybody else. You also have to fake it till you make it to yourself. You have to say, I am strong. I am this. And, and your brain is another personality in, within you. It is a passenger. And it's like, I'm going to change the radio back. I don't want to, I don't want, this is new. I don't want this. Yeah. So the brain, so I think the brain needs to like, you have to negotiate sort of with your brain for a long period of time. Say, I am, this is, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm not anxious. I'm excited. I'm excited. You lie, you lie to yourself, but in a productive way. Mm-hmm. You, you lie know? to yourself in a way that is like exactly empowering. productive way. It's empowering and it's productive. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just absolutely love this conversation. I did not know we go this way and I think it's so valuable. I really do. I appreciate you for sharing all of it. And when it comes down to it, I often share, I think it's Mel Robbins shares that like when you have that anxiety come up on your shoulder and I, and I use this because I used to resist it and shame myself and be angry and be like, Marcia, come on, you know better than this. Why are you doing this? And she said, she named it another name. And she calls it Sally and I love it. And she's like, Sally, I see you, but I'm safe. Like, I'm good. I know you're used to jumping in and taking charge and taking control, but I'm good. And I don't need you right now. And it's just a little reminder that that's going to continue. Maybe we can react to it a little bit differently so that we can respond differently to the anxiety instead of beating ourselves up for even having it. Yeah. Um, anxiety, uh, it takes no prisoners and it, it, it offers no deputy, you know, uh, but uh, something, one thing that I learned also uh, listening to a podcast from UBC uh, school of psychiatry, mm-hmm. uh, the, the psychiatrist was talking about how there's a borderline personality disorder, which is a number of antisocial symptoms that really uh, cripple your ability to like live a normal life. Uh, they say that 80% of people that are di- that that are diagnosed with BPD are no longer qualified for the diagnosis within five years. Now, yeah. N- now, the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the notion that some that you grow uh, you grow a tolerance to something. Uh, stimulus is that thing, and it, it, there is you can truly do that with stimulus. Your brain, when it's stimulated, it's meant to like have the dopamine receptors and all that stuff activate. But the trouble is if you have stimulation all the time, you're creating that space all the time and your brain, eventually those receptors become essentially numb to it. Just like you would, if you have to drink more with alcohol, with an alcohol, uh, with, with uh, smoking cigarettes and, and all the other kinds of things that are addictive, you have to take more and more and more of it. The dopamine receptors are no exception to this. So uh, if there's a period, like you're going to feel, like major depression for a while because you are literally depriving yourself of stimulus on purpose, mm-hmm. but you have, to, it has to be done. It has to be done. And think about it. Like mental health truly was better back in the day. You know, this is why <laughs> this exactly. is why yeah. sometimes you, whenever you went to the freaking laundromat, you just sat there. You just sat there for hours, didn't get to do anything, you know, like there's so many situations in which you would be deprived of stimulation. And, um, you know, uh, and, and this is this was a period of, of, of reprieve for those receptors. And so you have to, yeah, just gray out your computer screen to reduce the colors, how many screens you have in your life, noises, everything for a while, for a while, <laughs> you'll start to feel 
whenever you listen to music again, whenever you see color, something about it just feels more, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 that's what I've started to experience lately. I think that's a really powerful thing. And this is a piece that you're seeing more of. Somebody said to me just the other day in the sense that if you think about even 10 years ago, you wouldn't have even thought of having a phone without paying for music for ringtones. And now it's like when somebody has their notifications and ringtones on, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why is that on? Like we used to love having that. Now it's like, I can't stand any notifications on. They actually hit a different nerve for me where it's like, that doesn't feel good. I don't like that feeling. I don't want to be dictated when I need to go to my phone. That is such a big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's well, the, the, having that ringtone was like one of the only ways to like signal any one of your interests though. You know, back in the day, like if you were, you know what I mean? It's like everyone sort of has in the back of their mind if they're single, like maybe someone will like my song and be like, I love that song. And then your friend, you know, you know what I mean? There's like, you get to, you get to compel, invite, encourage uh, human interaction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're saying all that. You're saying all the things that I love. And I, again, appreciate the one thing you did uh, say, I just want to touch back on is like the where anxiety and excitement hit us in the brain is like very correlated for anybody who is listening. So even when nerves come up, I often will stop and I'm like, okay, now I'm not nervous. I'm excited. It's the same center. My brain doesn't know the difference. It's the same center. And so it's amazing, right? When you can start to shift that language to see. What's that kind of syrup that's like not syrup? There's like that that it's not syrup. So there's maple syrup. There's like syrup, right? And then there's like something that's kind of like syrup that people insist. It's like a it. I can't remember what it's called, but it's it's some kind of thing that's. I'm I I'm. It's not syrup, okay? But people try to pretend it is. You know that's what you're doing. That's what you gotta do. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta give your brain the other thing. And yeah. Insist that it's syrup. I love that. And so I want to say, I mean, I do, I just love this conversation. So I want to take it back in a sense that, um, you had a period of time. Yes. You grew up with, um, I'm just going to call it like terrible circumstances that I'm, yeah. I, I am. I just think it's, I, yeah, that's another whole story. You then, um, went through a period of time and then you officially became sober. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Um, it, and the thing is that like anybody else, um, I went through periods of, of growth several times with, with, I used to smoke cigarettes actually. Um, but I haven't smoked, um, in eight, nine years or something. Um, and so, uh, I actually drank relatively heavy for about three years, I think, because I, I didn't, I didn't have a purpose and I was, kind of escaping from the notion that life was truly just going to keep going. <laughs> yep. You know, it's hard to reconcile that like once your childhood is over, you feel like there's this period where there's, yep. there, there's a sort of a, a ghost, a ghostiness. You're a ghost. Like a, you're, um, you're, you're in a sort of a social purgatory, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just trying to, you, I mean, you're trying to, uh, you cannot appeal or dismiss this society. So you have to, start living in it and contributing um which is extraordinary for people young people uh to have to be the face really honestly i don't think anybody should be like these kind of decisions are like not really viable uh in terms of like reflecting the person until like they're 25 i feel like 
until you're 25, you're not, you're, you're, you're a kid. Yep. You know, and I think in technically as a pediatrics it's 26, right? Mm-hmm. It goes all the way to 26. Boys, especially I believe with boys, they do say that they don't have like the actual full uh, brain maturity until 25 or 26 years old. And another random fact is that when they are exposed to substances, excessive substances at a young age, it will delay that. It will affect how their brain actually develops. So it's been a big part of the conversation, especially when it comes to a lot of legalizing things and what does that look like? And it does affect brain um, yeah. health development, which affects mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I actually, um, I went through a period that I had alcohol withdrawals for one day. Okay. That's all I needed for that. It happened one time. Uh, and I quit after that. I, so I had, I had tried to do every kind of escape from the responsibility of quitting. Uh, I tried to switch to only beer. I tried to switch to only wine. I tried to say, I'm only going to, you know, I all kinds of nonsense rules that I, uh, I tried to impose, but addiction is so, it's a very peculiar thing. Um, because, uh, anyway, I, I had to, so I ended up, uh, trying to quit and I started to feel really terrible. And, uh, I was, I looked up the symptoms and stuff and I, and I found out that it was because I was, uh, I was experiencing withdrawals. So, I told my ex uh, that we needed to go to the grocery store and we got a little thing of wine. I drank a couple glasses of that wine over the period of like a day. Uh, And the symptoms did completely go away. And then after that, I, my withdrawals didn't occur again. And I, that was it. I quit two weeks. I quit on January 6th, 2017. That day, that's two weeks before Trump was inaugurated. Oh, wow. And were you living in the States when this happened? When you, when you quit? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know you're in Canada now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I live in Vancouver. Wow. So good for you for like, honestly, thank you for sharing that piece. I think just, it's just understanding that not having that, seeing what that substance was doing to you. And also, you know, you're, you're doing so much other work. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. And then take it into your writing. And I just think back to grade seven, right, Christoph? And now we're back on this trajectory again mm-hmm. after coming through, you know, not just the challenges during those years, but multiple challenges that stack onto it. And now you're circling back into something that you love doing. I, I worry. So I had, uh, I don't have a college degree or anything. Um, and I taught myself to write. Uh, and so whenever I joined the Navy, I remember I had a friend, uh, his name was Mike Buchek. I love that guy. Uh, he was adopted. He's a wonderful guy. Um, and, uh, in fact, actually this crazy story, we did not like, we knew each other cause we were in high school together. So he was a year ahead of me. I went to boot camp in Chicago and we were living in, he, he and I were both from Texas. In, in, in South Texas. I was in Chicago. Um, my brother, uh, who's my, he's like, he's my brother in spirit. Rashad, he and I, we joined together. We did the buddy program or something. And, um, one day we were 
we were we had to meet our brother division, which is another division that's completely separate from us, but they do all the same classes. Mike Buchek was in that class. We were, <laughs> we graduated boot camp together. We didn't even know. You know how many we live four houses away from each other. We <laughs> we in Texas we live four houses away from each other, and we showed up at the same time at boot camp for everything. It was so funny. Um, he said one time I started writing just words because I was uh, on on a on a laptop, and he's like, "Yes, count." They sound like uh, song lyrics. And I was like, "Okay." So then I started playing with uh, the the notion of words and sounds, which are it sounds like that that, but there is a synthesis that needs to that needs to form. It needs to like that needs to be refined um, because the understanding of, of, of language, there's alliteration and then there's other, there's other tricks to like allude to music of uh, the musical feeling and, in in a, in a, in prose or in, in writing in general. Um, and so that, uh, that sort of, it, it was a stream of consciousness thing is actually, I think that's really the only thing it's good for, <laughs> like for, for, in terms of, in terms of, in, in terms of literary substance. Okay. Um, because it's, it's, it's truly a way to like, um, like to understand like how words uh, uh, and you can correlate uh, sounds and words together and, and make that and bring that marriage together where it makes sense and it's uh, it sounds beautiful like I for example I have a two line poem ancient and forever is the war for gentle love we must not spare the fascists we must not free the dove wow Wow. So this creative, I mean, this creative side has always been there, but now it's really like, it's, is it the freedom to come out now? Is this where it's just like, it's freedom that it's like, wait, this is actually a strength of mine. How? Yeah. Yeah. The amount of, uh, just anxiety I felt, uh, towards the notion that I would be publishing a book and I would be at the mercy of people that don't know me. Uh, cause I would be at their mercy cause I am, I was susceptible then very much so to like criticism and and things like that because i i didn't have i've had plenty of uh moments where i had affirmation for example when i was 21 i wrote a short story called uh the man who first sinned uh and it's about a guy who buys property on the border to mexico in texas and how he watches and allows migrants to pass through his land and he and he meets a guy who is a coyote and these guys these people bring uh people across the border uh it, they're supposed to be safe about it but generally almost you know there's a lot of really terrible things that often happen to the women you know that are on these trips right because they're be they're it's either die in the desert or whatever you know um and so it's, it's a really ugly situation and so i wrote this short story and uh, i at the time i was actually living with a family from mexico and the parents didn't speak english in fact it was really funny their daughter who was like five had to translate for me it was a really funny UN situation. Um, so anyway, after the, uh, I, I actually named one of the characters in the short story after the daughter, after the daughter. Um, and, uh, she's very sweet. Um, anyway, I, uh, I submitted the short story to the New Yorker, uh, because I have no shame. <laughs> I was very arrogant. Um, they rejected it, but I actually received a personalized rejection letter from the, the editors who said that my voice was quite compelling. I was 22 or 23 when I got that little, when I got that letter. Um, so I had a, I had plenty of reason. I won a short story, uh, a contest, a 
and a poetry contest at the same college that I was going to. And then I won another one in Louisiana, uh, the same situation. And so uh, it was so innate. Uh, and it was so every time it was just so certain. And then when I got into journalism, I won. It's funny. I my my editor says uh, she needs me to do a story, uh, a feature on somebody. And I was like, what is a feature? <laughs> and I, so I went back to my desk and I looked up. I swear to, I swear to God, I read a WikiHow article what a feature was. And then I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to read a feature of a writer that I respect. And I'm going to sort of uh, adapt the format. And I did. I won an award for that article. <laughs> and then, and from the yeah, right. And then I won an I won an award for photography from the Texas Press Association and then um for coverage of during a something for Hurricane Harvey. Um and uh but after that, uh and I was diagnosed with Tourette's and I quit at the newspaper. I quit writing for five years. Um and I grew nothing but uh, I, I did nothing but uh, completely annihilate all of my confidence in myself. Um, and uh, because I was refusing to do something that I, I knew that I would enjoy, but that it was, it would challenge me and that it would bring, it would open me to criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it was a lot to contend with, but yeah, I was actually 32 and I had been trying to find work that I could do reliably uh, because Tourette's the way, the way that it manifests like now I can't use my thumb on my right hand anymore. Uh, and that's because I've it's, if you can imagine like, this is just a thing that I would just beat on things everywhere, every, everywhere I, all day long. And my, my hand is chronically swollen actually for that reason. Um, and so there, there's a number of symptoms that really uh, interfere with my ability to, uh, to really, uh, be proactive about my mental health uh, and about things that I loved. Because uh, again, like what we were talking about, there's a sort of that you spend a lot of time learning how to repudiate the accusations of society that imposes they impose on you because of your illness. Um, you know this this benign contempt, right? Uh, it's passive contempt, actually. I think I would describe it as passive contempt. You know, uh, it reminds me of something you know, MLK said: "The long arc of justice bends towards freedom." Right? Uh, bed source justice, excuse me. Um, anyway, so I tried to sign up for a government program that would help me find work. And the woman who was doing my, uh, she was doing the search for me on my behalf. She calls me and she says, um, there's really nothing you can do. I don't, we don't have anything because I, there's just you could hurt yourself, you could hurt somebody else. Or, um, you can't work reliably because you're, you know, like there's a lot of things. I, I would have to do something like I don't I honestly don't even know. Like I, I honestly do because I even any project I could not be able to do. If anybody's ever seen Louis Capaldi, who is a very famous musician who has Tourette's, uh, I saw a video this morning. The guy's in the middle of a concert. He cannot sing anymore because he's having tics. The audience is singing for him. That was a very moving moment for me. It was. I right? saw that video. It was incredible. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't matter the scale or seriousness of your task. If you will, you could literally in front of thousands of people be unable to do simple thing. 
the thing you do all the time. And so she said, no, we don't have to do anything. We, you've done, you've won awards and stuff and journalism and write. You like to write, but why don't you do that? I hung up with her and 10 minutes later, I started writing my book. And how long after that did you finish your book? The first draft was done in almost three months. And it's it's 162,000 words. This is 225,000 words. Um, and that's so that's two and a half times the length of The Hobbit for people that don't know. Right, right. So 162,000. I think uh, The Fellowship of the Ring is about 187,000 words. I'm pretty sure. So it's just shy of that, truly. I So I did that in almost three months, which is like doing uh, November writing month three times in a row or yeah, almost three to more than three times in a row uh, within two and a half months and even and then some. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I did the first draft and I was, I completely designed everything and I fell in love with the plot and discussing. Uh, here's the thing about, I think a lot of people struggle with developing uh, an interest in what they're doing or an interest in writing or an interest in creating art in general you have to be able to demonstrate uh, coherent, cogent, and inspiring connections and new, unique, some something unique or novel connections between different concepts. You're not going to be able to do that until you're learned enough. So you have to study. You have to study all the time. You're like studying even passively. If you're on the internet, if you're going to Instagram, follow pages that offer something of substance, right? They exist. They exist. I'm one of them. <laughs> okay. I know that. So, right. I, I try to be anyway. Um, and so uh, it's really just about exposing yourself to as much as you can until you can you can create stuff on your own that inspires even you. Mm-hmm. That is that is such beautiful advice. And I love this piece that, you know, you shut down part of yourself that you loved. That was, you know, you did love writing. It was part of it. And then you mm-hmm. didn't touch it again. And then you hear this message that, sorry, there's nothing that we can do. And 10 minutes later, you're writing your book and you're like, okay, well, I guess this is what I'm going to do now. And when you made that decision, you started writing, were you able to release those fears of like, what will people say? What will they think? What they, cause you said that that was one of the reasons why you had a hard time staying on that. So were you able to release that or how, how does that right. affect you? You know, it's funny because uh, my I, I do have instincts for my work, I feel like. Uh, and uh, that's really kind of what it feels like, I guess, in terms of trying to develop confidence in the craft. Um, I had I've had I've had enough affirmation from different sources uh, that that described a competence that, in fact, like I, I, this is this is not going to flatter me. Maybe, <laughs> but I, I, w- when I was at that award ceremony for a short story contest, I wrote, um, uh, I was walking in with, uh, my, uh, with a date and a friend and I heard someone as I was walking in there in the back of the room and they got the book over to my page and they're like, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious why this one won. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no wonder it's like, yeah, I mean, duh, that was like, it was like, whoa. Um, so I, I felt so far ahead of my peers uh, in every sense. And I had every reason to believe that. Um, 
Uh, because I remember actually reading about this girl who was absolutely celebrated for her work. She was only 21 or 22 at the time. Um, and she died in a car accident and they had to create, they created a, a scholarship in her name. And I had read her work and I was like, I could do, I think I could do that. Maybe even better. I don't know. Uh, and that's what I did. And I, and I, and I was like, they, if they're celebrating this, if they think this is good at 22, maybe I'm good. And so I did it. And, uh, and, uh, I, I actually, the, the first thing that happened that when I started writing my book, the reason why I kept going, right? That's the thing you do. The thing you want to, the, the inspiration, you need to have some kind of success on your first day. I think everyone is going to like, I feel like if you don't, uh, try to snatch it, it's going to, you're going to feel disappointed in yourself. So you need to, I mean, it's, it's really about coming. So I wrote this, I wrote a poem actually the first day that, that literally never, it never changed. It remained exactly the same. And it's, and it's really quite, it's really quite cute. Um, and it's about these it, in my book, the, when you die, it, you actually bury yourself with a seed of a fruit or a, whatever you want. And you grow into that thing and you live a second life as that tree or plant or whatever. And so it's like, there's a giant retirement community of trees <laughs> just living. And so this is, and, and when it's, it's quite cute, whenever they, you produce the, the, the fruit that these, these elders, the old people produce, uh, it actually has a number of properties that are quite beneficial. Uh, but one of them is that you could put like songs or poems into it. And so when the person ate it, they would hear your voice singing a song. And this one says, sit in the sun, sit in the shade, sit by the river, sit by the glade, sit by the scribe and watch them make notes, sit by the beasts and watch them eat oats, sit by the road and watch people pass. By sitting in the dirt or sitting in the grass, sit amongst friends and foes if you dare, because when you're a tree, you just want a chair. Oh, <laughs> I, I love it. Isn't that, Isn't that fun? It never changed. It's the, it's the only thing in the book. I had to rewrite the book completely. Um, it took me over more than a year to rewrite it. Um, but uh, and I was very disciplined. Um, and so, yeah, and I wrote that poem and that that poem kept me going. Honestly, it's I, I love thank you for all that you shared there, because I think there's this piece that like when you hit that point that you start to truly believe in like yourself, your value, your gifts, what you have, what mm -hmm. you can do, something you love doing. All of a sudden, it's like it, like how fast things can roll. I know it doesn't feel mm -hmm. fast when it's that mm -hmm. In the big it's like a train. It's like trying to push a train to start. Like you, it's yeah. going to be really slow, but eventually. and it doesn't feel like anything is happening, right? It's this constant friction. And I mean, I have published a number of times, but I work with people and helping them to write their books. I can just say, I think writing a book is like one of the number one things that people say they want to do in their lifetime. Very few do it. Very few do mm -hmm. it, and very few, even fewer than that, do it well. Honestly, yes. Yes, very few, very few yeah. well. And mm -hmm. it's such a big thing. So I just, I love that you did that and it's brought you back to writing and you have just published a kid's Christmas book. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. It's really cute. Uh, it's about a, it's about a little boy who finds a dinosaur egg. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, he discovers that there's actually a living baby in it and that he notices all the other eggs are, are, they're definitely not viable. Anyway, so he rescues the egg, and then when a, when the dinosaur is born, the mother find the mother of the dinosaur baby finds out that one of her babies survived, 
and she takes the baby away and she says, I, well, I got to protect my child. This is, he's kind of a runt too. So like these, so the little boy, Liam, it's called Liam earns a friend uh, because it's, it, it's about Liam developing trust with the mother so that he can be friends also with the little, uh, with the little dinosaur. And that's how important that is to like, so he makes, he knits her a sweater. He knits both of them a sweater and brings them gifts. And it's a whole thing. And it's really quite cute. No, I love it. I absolutely love the idea and I love the concept. And I, I mean, I am assuming that writing in this sense is like filling a part for you, like really serving and sitting in with your gifts, what you're here to do. And I think that is a beautiful thing. Hmm. Well, thank you. I, I actually, it's funny because this book, um, I, I had the, I evaluate, I had it evaluated through like a system that, uh, that determines like how many different words you used and all that stuff. And I used a kind of a lot of different ones. <laughs> Uh, and I, the reason, and I, 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 there was a reason for that. I, I actually wanted so badly for this to be a children's book. I know that it, it is, it, it is a children's, I, I designed it to be a children's book. I wrote it with the notion that we are like the, there's, there's so much stuff in here that is, is um, that's not puerile. It's just, it's just, but it does touch the child in you at heart. It does. It really does. There's a, there's a, there's so many moments you know, that are, that are really cute that help to that. I tried to a number of things. Number one, uh, demonstrate healthy relationships between older women and young men. That was one of the most important things was to have incredible women that were much older, like in their like that, that, that young men now perceive as much older when they're in their sixties. Uh, right. So it's like, uh, and they say, and, and a lot of young men don't understand the value of older women older women understand the value of young men and they're they, they deal with it <laughs> you know you know but the thing is but they, but it's not it's not reciprocated and so um i have a lot of characters that i that i really try to like so to to show competence and and beauty virtue strength um so much like the, the things that uh that in ennoble us you know um yeah i love it i love it no i do i love it um what's next for you i'm writing volume three of the book the series the second son so uh and it's uh, it could it i've designed it in the in the same way that if you've seen game of thrones right have you seen it oh yeah of course okay so the first episode if you watch game of thrones you go back it's ned stark it's all about ned stark yeah the second episode is all about Tyrion, i think and the third episode is all about daenerys and they're all different parts of the world with different troubles at the time, but they are loosely connected. Yeah. I mean, even, even very in, in intimately, but from remotely. Uh, and so I designed my book the same way. The first paragraph, or excuse me, the first uh, chapter is about, uh, paradise, uh, because the, the, the land, the, the, the island of paradise, the paradise, uh, is actually meant to be an allegory for the kind of, uh, wealth like the wealth inequality between the generations and so the boomers living like baby boomers living in much better like retirement situations uh and you know for example i i looked up the statistic uh at my age maybe a couple years ago uh baby boomers had they had 20 percent of the national wealth they had 20 percent of the money 
Do you know how much millennials have at the same age? It's 2%. Mm. Wow. 10 times. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. So imagine, imagine a life, like imagine a life where millennials are making 10 times what they're making right now. Yeah. Then they can buy a house. Now we can buy a house. Yeah. But we can't, we can't that. No. So um, it's, I, I remember my, I remember my ex, her aunt was telling me that she left school without any student debt. Why can't she, I worked full time and I paid for my school. Yeah. but And I, but, but then here's the thing. Uh, Then I remembered about an hour before she had talked to me about how she and her first, whatever, they bought a house together at the age of 20. It was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying, are you saying you had the money? To pay for your entire education and a mortgage, and you think that our situations are the same? You did that all at the same time. You paid off your student debt and you bought a house at the same time. Millennials can't do either of those things right now, and like the interest alone, a lot of for a lot of people is literally bankrupting. Like it's and and the thing is, you can't you can't wash that debt away. It, it'll stay with you forever. Loans, no, no. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. It's interesting. Um, interesting, isn't it? Frustrates me, but yes. Um, interesting. You're, we're in this space and I love how you are writing and sharing, um, pieces of what are actually happening, right? Like, so you've, you've taken that into your storyline of how you've written. So you're writing this. When is your next? This is the third book of the series. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, originally, this is actually only supposed to be one book, but um, I thought I would be able to give away the first volume for free. Uh, and then people could buy the second volume if they enjoyed the first volume. Mm-hmm. But Amazon didn't, they, they don't let you price it that way. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, right. So I, um, I had to combine them into one volume so that, you know, they weren't buying 99 cents and then 99 cents. So I just wanted to know if they want to buy it. Uh, so I, I actually price it like as low as possible. I consider it, I wanted to make a cultural contribution. So it's not the only version that actually makes me money is the hardcover. Like I don't make any money from the paper. In fact, the paperback is like $13 and it's 500 and something pages. <laughs> So, it is actually funny. People don't realize there was a day where authors made money. Um, like I had a family member say that to me once. It's like, great, your books have done so well. It's too bad you don't make more money from that. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's just not how it works for authors. It opens up different opportunities, but it's just not how, mm-hmm. like, like the, this one, like this one that I was just going to yeah. say. You are in a space now where, you know, like you look back and think of where you've come from in the last 10 years, for example. And now we're in a space of on a podcast, talking openly, sharing, like really putting so much heart out there with your story, which I think is, I think it's so freaking powerful. I really, really do. And I, I'm grateful that our paths have crossed because I wanted the chance to be able to highlight the work that you're doing. And share that you can walk through really difficult times in your life and still come out the other side. So a lot of the premise of the show being like, own your choices, own your life. Where was the turning point for you where you went, no, I actually, yeah, this has been my story. This is what I've walked through. This is what I'm experienced. But I 
this is not my ending. Like, I'm not done. This is what I want to do. It was when I knew that I was going to have to talk about my abuse on interviews and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I knew that, uh, of course, the the people responsible will eventually know. (laughs) Eventually. Uh, I don't know if they already know. Um, But I, I did. I told my father. Um, actually quite recently I told him, uh, that everyone would know what he did to me. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the only time I've ever done that in my entire life. I've never stood up to my father, uh, in a, in a, in a consequential or substantial way, but I told him what I thought of him as a person, as a father, and as a, I just, uh, really did not, I was <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So he, yeah, I, Anyway, uh, that, it, it was actually quite cathartic, um, but I realized that I had the privilege of being able to do that, um, and so many people actually don't, um, for one reason or another, uh, to get that kind of closure. Uh, but I knew whenever I was going to come on the show, because I've talked about it, uh, that saying, this is what happened to me, uh, it's kind of like, for there forever, you know? <laughs> It is. It is. And this is where you and I spoke about it. Um, I heard a quote this morning and you're just making me think of it. Um, you and I spoke about it before. It is your story and it's part of what you walk through and it doesn't have to define you. Um, I heard a quote this morning is we do not get to choose how life changes. We get to choose how life changes us. And I was like, whoa, that one mm. actually really, really hit. We don't get to choose how life changes, right? And what what happens, we get to choose how life changes us. And I feel like, yeah, yeah you're you're responding in a way and doing something that I, I promise you, your story is going to inspire more people than you can imagine. And by putting it out there in the way that you are, you're also showing and giving others permission that, yeah, you can have some pretty difficult circumstances and situations yeah. happen. And That's, yeah do something with it there's nobody there's there not very many people billy eilish i think louis capaldi yeah. there's not very many people that with tourette's uh no. no not many writers that i know that um uh but um there's so many i just john steinbeck is uh one of the greatest american writers that ever lived and he wrote the grapes of wrath and east of eden of mice and men tortilla flat the winner of our discontent, so many wonderful, beautiful, lovely books. Um, and he said his whole mission as a writer is to help people understand one another. And that's what I, I, it's mine is exactly the same. My book is actually dedicated to all who love in gentle earnest. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm. I, I love this conversation and I just, I'm grateful that our paths have crossed and, yeah, I really. This am. is as awesome as I thought it was going to be. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, man, I, this is going to be the, this is going to be really fun. I really, I'm, I'm, I felt really good about it. I felt really good. Mm-hmm. I, I am going to receive that and say thank you, and I'm glad because this is the kind of conversations that I like to have. And again, I say it: your story will inspire somebody. I promise you it will. 
It will. And that's just, it goes further. Your story will go further than you could have ever imagined. You're not being defined by what happened to you. You're being defined by how you're responding and what you're doing now. And that's the bigger, that's what deserves the, that's what deserves the attention. And I think it's incredible. I really do. There's actually one more component that's like really critical though to all of this Mm -hmm. and the whole structure. And that's forgiving yourself when you make mistakes along the way. Like even when you do things, I'm not perfect. I've even wronged people recently, like not like seriously, but like, you know, like offended somebody or hurt somebody's feelings. Right. I've everybody does these things, uh, but they don't like you said, they don't define you. And you these these actions are members to a whole greater nexus of considerations that you are in charge of. And some of them you're not. And so uh, the anxiety that you feel towards the world when you make a mistake and that you think the hostility that they have towards you. You got. You have to do your best to shed bitterness as much as you can, and start to believe. But it, it's funny because this entire book is is everybody. I had so many people tell me that it wasn't going to do well at all, and that it, that no one's going to like it because it's too hard to read. Um, and I said I have faith in people. I know that if they put the work in, if they put the effort in to understand some of the things that are more complex um, that like, for example, at the end of my, at the end of one passage that took me, it's a paragraph that took me four days to write. Uh, and that was born from someone who went to jail. That was very dear to me. And it was a really ugly situation. And I was very upset. But, um, I wrote this paragraph that took me four days and it said, at the end, it says justice and redemption are folly, but to seek them is not. So you don't need to shame yourself for seeking. Yeah. yeah. That's there, it's okay to seek that. That's if okay. you are truly sincere, if you're sincere in your contrition and you truly want to better the world and it's and, and not through violence but through cooperation. Yeah. Uh, then then you need to forgive yourself so you can do more good. Because not forgiving yourself is just mm-hmm. literally putting up a brick wall and blocking you. We're back to the train trying to push it mm-hmm. forward by yourself. It's not, it's like, it's a complete roadblock. And do your best to trust people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Believe and in people. Is that something that I just want to ask you, like, as you look at it now, like trusting and believing in people, is that something you can look now and say, yeah, I've come a long ways with that. Oh man. I, uh, <laughs> I, was, I felt while it. I was writing this, while I was writing this, my ex was saying like, this is brilliant. And you know, like, this is like, the, that she, I'm, I'm still a favorite writer, probably. Um, <laughs> she's very lovely. Um, but she kept telling me that, um, like I would, I would compare it to different books of, I have a bunch of books of classic literature and I would read different passages and I would say, what do you think about my work compared to this? And she would say, yeah, I think it's as good as that. And I would, I was reading from Charles Dickens, you know, and I, and, uh, it floored me. And to think that I may be doing something, uh, find finally doing something of consequence in my life you know yeah not maybe you are no (laughs) (laughs) you are you are i i will make sure everything is in the show notes to connect with you as far as you know where to find the book to be able to connect you said you're most active on instagram i'm I'm most active i'm tiktok actually where's that's where i have about five thousand followers i went viral a couple times on there so i've 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 sold about 1300 books 
I listen, authors on TikTok, it happens. I actually like I've seen, um, I cannot think of the man who's in his oh, what's his book? The one who wrote the book and it was he went viral, viral on TikTok. And he wrote the book and it John was John Green. Is that the, the one in our stars? That, was that that guy? The fault in our I was stars? thinking of the man, and I'm sorry, I cannot think of his name, and I'm it's gonna drive me crazy. Anyways. But he was in his seventies, or was seventies? Oh no, no, no! It's not that. It's not John Green's book. Was he had written it fourteen years ago, and somebody had shared it, and it went like absolutely viral. Mm. Made no money for ten, ten, twelve, fourteen years, or whatever it was. Mm. And that really, I saw a lot of stories then with on TikTok take off with others. So I will make sure all of those connections are there. I honestly, I just appreciate you, your time, your honesty, your vulnerability and sharing your story with us today. It's really, really powerful. And I'm grateful that our paths have crossed. I have one more question for you. Christoph, it's what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Well, um, um, realizing that you have, you have to sometimes consciously receive love. Wow. That is actually, that's, that's actually harder than what some people, what it might sound. Yeah, it is. It is. It requires a great deal of trust and suspension of so many, so much paranoia. And that's informed, truly informed by your experiences that, that would, that otherwise, you know, levels you when you are ruminating in the dark by yourself, you know, you have to say, this person is trying to love me. It's because I'm valuable. It's because I'm worthy of it. That was absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Honestly, thank you so much. I'm so grateful our paths have crossed. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Yeah, I can't wait to come back. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.